scandalous grace. Let's bow our heads. Lord and Father, we thank you for this opportunity for us to gather once more and to be in your house with your people. Lord, we pray that you would be with us in a special way at this time. May you open our hearts and our minds as we consider more the topic of grace. This is my prayer, Lord, in your name. Amen. Have you ever heard the saying, what happens in the darkness will eventually come to the light? What this means is that people, uh, when, when people are doing things that they are not supposed to be doing, they will eventually get found out. You may think that you've gotten away with it. You may think that you are slicker than everyone else. But the chances are that your poor decision-making or poor choices will eventually be exposed or come back to haunt you. The reality is, people, when they want to do bad things or things they should not be doing, it's often done in the dark, away from prying eyes, behind closed doors. You don't want people to find out what you're doing, so it's done in the proverbial darkness. But what is done in the darkness will eventually come to light. Would you like to hear a story of how I learned this the hard way? I'm not sure if my family know this story, so let's try to keep this in-house. What happens in Banbridge stays in Banbridge, okay? Um, it won't come as a big surprise to you, but I wasn't always a pastor. Shocking, I know. But uh, I was uh, 16, 17 years old, and uh, me and my friends, we uh, really liked our R&B music. And uh, this famous DJ, his name was uh, Trevor Nelson, he was going around the country bringing parties to different towns, different cities, and it just so happened that he was bringing one of those parties uh, to a nightclub in High Wycombe, my hometown. Uh, so I really wanted to go to this party. Me and, my, me and my friend, we really wanted to go to this party. And uh, I asked my parents, and my parents, of course, said no. 16-year-old, 16, 17-year-old in a nightclub, no, it's not the place to be. So I wasn't happy, but um, I tried to work my way through it. Uh, so what I did is I asked my parents if I could go to stay at my friend's house. Um, and my parents somehow forgot that the party, the day that I was asking to go to my friend's house was the same day that the party was. So uh, me and my friend, we, we um, so my parents allowed that. I said, that's fine, you can go to your friend's house. So I uh, went to my friend's house, um, we got changed, we walked into town, and uh, even though we were too young, we still got into the club. And uh, I'm happy, happy, I'm in the party, and where I wanted to be, um, and uh, the music's playing, and uh, me and my friend are having a good time. So you have to understand, I was brought up in the church, so... I was one of, so I was, I knew that I shouldn't have been there, and I was still trying to keep standards, even though I, I was I was letting the team down. So uh, I wouldn't drink or anything. I wouldn't do any. I wouldn't um, uh, partake in alcohol. I was just there to enjoy the music and 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 have a good time. So, but my friend, my friend uh, was somebody who did drink. Fine, no problem. So he bought a drink, and. Uh, 
he, uh, he wanted to use the bathroom. So he said, can you hold my drink for me? So I said, yeah, sure, no problem. So I'm holding the drink, I'm bopping along to the music, um, having a good time. And then I see this. A cameraman. Uh, a cameraman turned right where I was. 17-year-old in a club where he shouldn't he's not supposed to be with a drink in his hand, even though it wasn't mine. Um, and I was in a nightclub. And uh, the, the, I don't know if you've ever seen the film The Matrix. It was like everything was happening in a slow time for me. Uh, I couldn't quite believe what, um, um, what was happening. Um, one other thing that I neglected to mention was that um, these parties were uh, filmed and then uh, clip, clips and snippets of them were shown every Wednesday night. And guess whose little sister watched that show religiously every Wednesday evening? Uh, so uh, that, the following Wednesday nights, I had to make sure that my sister was occupied so that um, any uh, clips of me were, were not seen. And, oh, there's my brother. No, 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 that didn't happen. So I, I, I don't know um, whether the clip actually made it onto the, to the, to the show, my friends were watching because they thought this was hilarious, obviously. Um, and uh, they claimed that they saw me, but I, I, I don't know. I, uh, but what is in the darkness will always come uh, to the light. We operate in the darkness because we think nobody will see us. There's less chance of us getting caught, less chance of us getting into trouble, less chance of you having to stop what you're doing. And sometimes we know, we know what we're doing is wrong. And we want to stop, but we just can't help ourselves. What is in the darkness will eventually come to light. But the woman in our story was doing something wrong in the light. She was someone she wasn't supposed to be, and she was with someone who wasn't her husband. But unfortunately for her, she had been caught in the act. Unfortunately, she had been set up. The Pharisees were trying to prove a point to Jesus, and... Um, they had set this woman up. Uh, they were trying to catch Jesus out, but in, e- in order to do that, they needed to catch her out. Uh, as for her, the woman, well, she's immaterial. Her future, it's unimportant. Her reputation, who cares if it's ruined? She is a necessary yet dispensable part of their plan. In essence, she was a pawn in their game. Uh, to add to her humiliation and shame, They dragged her out half-naked through the town. Uh, Mothers covered the eyes of their children as they dragged her. Men shook their head as as she passed by. A crowd had begun to follow them just to see what all the commotion was about. And if her shame and humiliation were not complete, she was thrown into the middle of a Bible study. There she is, half-naked, very much guilty of doing something she should not have done. Half the town looking at her and she gets shoved in front of a Bible study. How do we know that she was set up? Well, it took two to tango, but where was the guy? He was guilty as well, but he is nowhere to be seen. It was almost like he was let out the back while she was dragged around the front. She knew what she deserved. She knew what was coming next. She knew she was caught in the act of adultery and the traditions of the time said that she had to be stoned to death as a punishment. You know, if you're messing around with your friends and you know they're going to hit you, you can kind of prepare for it, brace yourself. 
But tell me something. How do you prepare yourself for a stoning? Uh, when stones are coming at you from all angles and this isn't a play fight, this is to kill you. How do you prepare yourself for that one? She's curled up in a ball, in a fetal position, cowering in the dust. Maybe she even said her own funeral service, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, for she knew she was going to be part of the dust soon. There was no exit plan here. Should she plead for mercy? Or what would be the point? Deny the accusations? She was caught in the act. Her time was up. And she was about to die in one of the most horrible and brutal ways imaginable. The authorities made their case before Jesus. This woman deserves to die, but what do you say? And from her covering her face, shaking in the dust, she sees a man she has never seen before. And he got down to her level. She was in the dust and he met her where she was. She peeked through her fingers at the crowd and saw that the men had already picked up stones and were ready to go. Well, this is it, she thought. I'm never going to see my parents again. I'm never going to see my friends again. It's all over. And she waited and waited for the first stone to strike her. Uh, Then the man that she'd never seen before, he stands up and he says, He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Was he defending her? Was somebody standing up for her? The crowd who were angry and loud, who were getting ready to stone the woman, all of a sudden fell silent. Instead of stones hitting her, stones started to fall to the ground from the hands of the people. The oldest dropped their stones first because they had been sinning the longest. And one by one they all went away until... They all left and it was just Jesus and the woman. And he gets back down to where the woman is. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? The woman was so afraid she probably thought this was a trick. She looks around and sees no one there. That huge crowd that was there before had all gone. Was this a dream? Was this really happening? Not three minutes ago she was ready to die. And here she was, unharmed. I imagine with a trembling voice and tears in her eyes, she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. Moments ago, she thought her life was over. And here, because of a man she'd never met, she was walking away free. What an incredible story. It is one of the most dramatic episodes in the New Testament. For a person of that era, it was shocking from start to finish. The woman was was with someone she should not have been. She was undeniably guilty. The Pharisees had set her up. How was it that they had caught her in the act at dawn? Even someone with limited understanding could see through that ploy. Then, of course, the way that Jesus handles the situation is shocking. When the mob are there with the stones in their hands, it looks like that there is no way out for the woman, but somehow in the middle of that unexpected confrontation, Jesus teaches the people a lesson. A lesson which causes them to introspect and reflect on their lives. And what about the woman? Surely he should have condemned her, told her off or put her in her place. But he doesn't. He tells her to go and sin no more. It's shocking from start to finish. 
But perhaps most shocking of all is how grace is shown in this story. Because if we're honest, the woman was guilty. She had done wrong. She thought she was going to get away with it, but she didn't. The Pharisees were wrong to entrap her, but she was not smelling of roses. And yet, in the moment when we least expected it, in the moment when it was least deserved, here it is, grace, shocking grace, outrageous grace, scandalous grace. But this is what grace does. Grace covers us. Grace shields us. Grace allows us to fight another day. Grace covers over our sins. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. But when we take a step back, we see that that's an awful lot of grace. I don't know how much grace I have used and abused in my lifetime, but I am just one individual. Uh, When you consider each of our stories and the baggage that they come with, and yet still grace covers all of us. This is why I refer to it as scandalous grace. I mean, whenever people do wrong, especially high-profile people, we don't expect them to get away with it. A good example of this, this week there was a, a Premier League football match when two players spat at each other. For them to get away with such disgusting and foul behaviour would be considered scandalous. Yet, all of us, with our shortcomings and missing the mark, we are all covered by the grace of God to the point where it is scandalous. Scandalous grace. It shouldn't be allowed to happen. But, I don't know about you, but I am thankful to God that it does happen. I am thankful that grace happens at the feet of Jesus. We, all of us, can identify with the plight of this woman because while not all of us have been set up, all of us have done wrong. We all mess up. We all say things that we shouldn't say in the heat of the moment. We all fail. We do things we regret. And unfortunately, yes, we hurt the people that we love the most. And like the people, like the woman being dragged through the square, some of our downfalls have been public so that everyone knows about it. Or people have been unsympathetic towards us instead of helping us. And as for our parents, bless them, they don't always make it easy for us. One writer puts it like this. Parents own a travel agency that specialize in guilt trips. Parents own a travel agency that specialize in guilt trips. They start off small when we are young and they still keep business booming right up into adulthood. And oftentimes we are disgusted with ourselves. Some things, you know, you slip, you mess up, and you, you know it's understandable because we're human, but there are some things which, you, which we orchestrated ourselves. You know, you know you should not have done that thing. Even thinking about it, you, you weren't even entertaining it. But somehow, through bad choices and decisions, and possibly even a weakness on our parts, you did it anyway. And it sickens you that you did it. But the Apostle Paul, he understands this. Uh, what he says rings so true uh, that you know that these are inspired words. He says in Romans chapter 7, in fact, turn with me in your Bibles. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. 
Romans chapter 7, verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Another version puts it like this. I do not understand the things that I do. I do not do what I want to do, but I do the things that I hate. He goes on to say, I want to do the things that are good, but I do not do them. I do not do the things that I want to do, but I do the bad things that I don't want to do. Have you been there? Have you shared Paul's frustration? We live in this constant tension of knowing what is right and and wrong. It's clear what we should and should not do. It's not rocket science. But all too often the things that we should not be doing, that is what we find ourselves doing. And so you mess up and you give yourself a hard time. And sometimes we ourselves are worse than the accusers in our story. How could you do that? Newsflash, this just in, you failed again. What a surprise, you aren't good enough. You've cornered the market in being an absolute numpty. Well done. We talk ourselves down. We condemn ourselves. We think that God cannot possibly extend his love and his grace to us. We think that we are beyond the reach of God. And we end up doing the work of Satan. Satan is the accuser. He never stops. He's relentless. He's waiting for our downfall. Like the woman, he will drag us before Jesus and proclaim to everyone how awful we have been, how undeserving we are. But the accuser, thank God, is soon silenced. For Jesus stands between us and the accuser. He could be well within his rights to shake his head and say how disappointed he is, but he defends us. He is our advocate, our lawyer. As he stood between the woman and her accusers, he stands between us and the accuser, even if the accusers are ourselves. There is no question that we are wrongdoers, that we are sinners, but Jesus defends us, would protect us, would cover us by his grace. Romans 8.34 in the Message Bible puts it like this. He is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. He is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. This, there is, the, there is a, a defiance to Jesus, that he takes on our cases that were certified to lose, but yet he transfers his righteousness to us so that we can obtain the victory. In what courtroom would you hear of a lawyer saying, well, I'm a good guy and I'm defending the client. So because I'm good and decent, I have transferred my decency to them so they can go free. It would be unheard of, but this is what happens. Grace is what happens. Scandalous grace. Paul will go on to say in Romans chapter 8 that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is incredible. I mean, when you really think about it, truly incredible. As sinners, all of us are guilty, all of us. We are all in that boat together. But the grace of God does not pronounce a guilty verdict, but one of freedom, free from condemnation not just for our past mistakes but for our future ones also when God looks at you he sees the righteousness of his son first 
his righteousness covering our sins. You see, God is either the God of perfect grace or he is not. Grace forgets, period. He who is in, who, he who is perfect love cannot hold grudges. If he does, then he isn't perfect love. And if he isn't perfect love, then we might as well forget everything because we're chasing fairy tales. But he possesses this wonderful quality of loving forgetfulness. And he has a gracious, terrible memory. Think about this. If he didn't forget, how could we pray? How could we sing to him? How could we dare enter into his presence if the moment he saw us, he remembered all of our sins? The truth is we couldn't. But it's his grace that covers us. Grace that abounds uh, much more than sin abounds. Grace that is greater than all our sin. When that poor woman was asked by Jesus where her accusers were, she said there were none. Then Jesus says, I also don't judge you guilty. You may go now, but don't sin anymore. If you have ever wondered how God reacts to you when you fail, frame these words in your heart. Read them. Ponder them. Let them wash over your soul. He is speaking, and in spite of our guiltiness and wrongdoing and sin, He says, I don't judge you guilty. What a saviour. What grace. What amazing grace. So here is the good news for you and I, in case you missed what I was getting at. Jesus will do for you what he did for that woman. Every Christian needs to know and understand this. Jesus will defend us like he defended that woman. Jesus will extend his grace to us uh, like he extended his grace to this woman. Why? Because that is the type of saviour that he is. Uh, this does not give us license to sin and, and keep sinning. Uh, because that there is a, an abundant supply of grace available to us, no. Grace doesn't give you the excuse to live as you want. Grace should be the real motivation for living for Jesus. Grace doesn't give you the license to live your own life. Grace is when you live him, love him so much that because of your gratefulness for his salvation, you want to live for him. If ever there was a story to illustrate grace, this is it. Jesus knows that we have done wrong. He knows we have fallen short. It verges on scandalous that Jesus would even consider showing us grace in the face of our sins and our past. But the beauty of grace is that it doesn't dwell on our past or our misgivings. It's not that grace doesn't see it. It sees it and it recognizes it, but it doesn't linger. Grace encourages us to go again to be better next time learn from your mistakes in spite of us missing the mark time and time again we find acceptance in God and we also find love and mercy grace and forgiveness freedom from shame freedom from guilt we find a second chance Jesus has a speciality in second chances But don't worry if you've messed up again, because he's also the saviour of the third and the fourth and the 87th chance also. When the crowd had gathered around that woman, the only person in the world who was actually qualified to condemn this woman does not. Instead, he pardons her and lovingly forgives her. Instead of shame, 
this woman experiences the beautiful feeling of being forgiven. This, my friends, is grace. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve instead of getting what you deserve. For some of us, the hard part is not understanding this. The hard part comes in forgiving ourselves. But now is as good a time as any to forgive yourself and start over, for there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. In closing, I'm going to play a clip from the film Les Miserables. Has anybody seen it? It is a good film, but if you can't, if you can't stand musicals, people are bursting into song every minute. Uh, but I would highly recommend the, the play in the West End. It's a fantastic show. Anyway, in this clip, we find the character, the main character, Jean Valjean, played by a very rough-looking Hugh Jackman, who has recently been released from prison. And through the sheer kindness of a bishop, Jean Valjean is taken in and looked after. So let's see what happens next. For you are weary, and the night is cold out here. Though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. There is wine here to revive you, there is bread to make you strong. A bed to rest till morning, rest from pain and rest from wrong. Bless the food we eat today, bless our dear sister and our honored guest. Silver, we caught this man red-handed. Hear the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. 
conceal this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul for desperation takes advantage of the bishop and steals some of the silver without so much of a thank you. What have I done, sweet Jesus? What have I done? Become a thief in the night. Become a dog on the run. Have I fallen so far? The maids in the bishop's house sneer at Valjean with all the contempt you would expect the accusers for the woman to do. He's been caught literally red-handed. Then it looks like it's another trip prison for him and almost like the woman he's waiting for those stones to come his way. But what the bishop does next is amazing. He knows what Valjean has done. He knows he has stolen from him, but he makes the outrageous claim that Valjean had forgotten some silver candlesticks. He even calls him brother. And just like the accusers in the story, the policemen are left deflated. It wasn't an outcome they expected. The bishop shows Valjean an incredible, dare I say, scandalous amount of grace. But he doesn't just stop there. He challenges Valjean. He challenges Valjean to do better. And isn't this a copy of what Jesus does? He shows the woman grace and then challenges us to do better. The grace that Jesus showed this woman, he can show to you and I. Jesus, he loves us so much that he looks past what we do and sees who we are. He could give you a hard time, but instead he tries to improve us. He tries to educate us. He forgives us, and he forgives us not to do the same thing over and over again. He forgives us in order to learn from our mistakes so that we can go and sin no more. He shows us a better way. He puts us on the right path. Yes, he knows we have done wrong, but he doesn't hold it against us. Instead, he wants us to do better, wants us to be better. I'm so glad that what is in the darkness will come to the light. And not just any light, but the light of Jesus, the light of the world, who shows us another way, a better way to live. If you remember, the woman was, was thrown into a Bible study. At the end of this particular episode, he turns and says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Yes, it is true. What is done in the darkness usually comes to the light. So let your darkness come into the light, the light of the world, who shows us a better way, another way to live, who covers us by his grace. Let your darkness come into his light so that you can have the light of life, so that like the woman, you too can experience this grace, this amazing grace, this outrageous grace, this scandalous grace. Amen.